Hey folks, welcome to Ayahuasca Anonymous, the podcast about stories of personal transformations from the use of ayahuasca and other plant medicines. I'm your host, Nate Falkoff. If you're new, welcome. This is a bit of a special episode. Sometimes I do dumb comedy routines at the top. I try not to take myself too seriously, but out of respect for my guest and the fact that this is a really long conversation, I'm going to try to be very brief. So, my guest this week is Carlos Tanner, the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation. Doesn't that just sound important? Uh, Carlos spent 17 years studying uh, indigenous wisdom in the Amazon. He'll tell you about it. You'll learn more about it from the conversation. But there are a couple of important things I think I need to mention to contextualize this conversation with Carlos. One is that we didn't delve too much into Carlos's personal backstory, but he has told his backstory in many other formats, including on Down to Earth with Zac Efron on Netflix. So it's, it's no secret, but Carlos was originally brought to ayahuasca from hitting a rock bottom moment after some battle with heroin addiction. So I think that's just a good thing to keep in mind. We didn't get too much into his personal backstory pre-Ayahuasca because that was 17 years ago for him. But it does weave in into the conversation. I think that's just something to know going in. I knew it, but I did not force the conversation to go that way. The other thing that I think is good to mention is that I really kind of see this as a two-part conversation. I'm going to release it all at once just because why not? But the first part is a very accessible view of some of the gaps and flaws in the Western medical paradigm and how ayahuasca and the indigenous wisdom fills in those gaps and provides a more accurate and holistic view of health. This is it was a really great, he's very articulate, at talking about trauma, at talking about how beliefs influence your health. So this is like part one, I'd say, show it to your grandma. It's for everyone. Now part two, which I don't know when that starts, maybe an hour in or so, we start to get a little weird because how often do I get to talk to a guy who has spent as much time as Carlos has with one foot in the indigenous world? So I asked some questions around spirituality, God, morality, and that took us uh, in some confusing and troubling and uncomfortable directions, and I'm so glad we did. So I'm leaving it all in. It's all in there. But just so you know, part one, very different than part two. Part two, we start getting pretty out there. But part one, I think, is the important part talking about personal healing and how ayahuasca can transform your relationship with yourself and your life. So I'm really happy with this conversation. It was a real blast. I'm really grateful that I get to do this. So here's my conversation with Carlos Tanner. 
start with what the Ayahuasca Foundation is and sort of what your mission is? Yeah. I mean, the Ayahuasca Foundation is a nonprofit organization based in Iquitos, Peru. I started it in 2009 with my teacher, Don Enrique Lopez. And after I had completed a four-year apprenticeship where I lived in my first teacher, Don Juan's house uh, with his family from 2004 to 2008. And the... Real vision of the Ayahuasca Foundation was as an educational resource, like as a school, to teach the Shipibo healing tradition to people from all over the world in the hopes of reviving ancestral wisdom uh, across the globe. Uh, all of our ancestors obviously were indigenous at one point or another, and all of them relied on plant medicine and shamanism through every single culture. Um, but yet the vast majority of that wisdom has been lost, unfortunately, as the westernization and modernization of human culture has happened. But thankfully, certain special places like the Amazon rainforest, those cultures and those traditions are still intact. And in the case of the Shipibo, fully intact. And so we felt that it would be a benefit to humankind to try to spread that wisdom back into humankind to try to reconnect with our ancestral traditions, our ancestral wisdom, and reconnect with nature as a whole to save the world, I guess. Yeah. So so part of what's different about the Ayahuasca Foundation is that educational element, I think. That's something that stood out to me. But also, I was wondering... Since you did not come from that tradition, you came from a self-described guy from Massachusetts, I think you said in one of your videos, where where was all of this interest in ayahuasca born from for you? Where did you first connect with it? Well, I first came across the word ayahuasca reading The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner when I was a senior in high school. And um, that coincided with me I, you know, I, I want to say that it was, um, you know, a series of influences. It's hard to pinpoint, but I know that my senior year of high school, I had to do a bunch of book reports in my English class. And, um, one of the books I read was The Electric Kool Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolf. And, um, that was a very intriguing book for me. I also read uh, and did a book report on fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Um, and so, you know, drug taking and especially psychedelic drug taking became uh, a part of my consciousness and reality in as a senior in high school. And I think that I had a bizarre affinity towards shamanism, which might go all the way back to like Ewoks uh, having a shaman. You know, when I was yeah, a little yeah. kid, there was like that Ewok character that had the, uh, the like skull headdress, uh, you know, with the staff, like clear shaman, um, in the Ewoks. And, and I, he was one of my favorite, uh, characters. And they do that weird, like, rite of passage as well. Right. Right. That, yeah. There is, that, that would, I'm going to guess that was my actual introduction to shamanism. And I'm just, you know, trying to connect some dots. Sure. I don't know for sure, but for whatever reason, I read Tom, um, The Way of the Shaman, and that was when I first was introduced to ayahuasca. Unfortunately, he's taken that chapter out um, in subsequent 
republishings of that book. So if you are like planning to read that book, try to get an old copy so that it still has the chapter about ayahuasca in it. And that then um, played itself out years later, really, where I started researching medicinal plants, uh, which was also an interest of mine. I happened to like live, uh, rent a house that used to be Edder Stones and Gardens, was it's called. It was like a garden shop that had greenhouses. And that just kind of naturally led me to want to learn more about plants and specifically uh, medicinal plants. And then that research led me back to ayahuasca and, um, and then happened to have a Peruvian uh, secretary at the office that I worked after college. And she invited me to go to Peru with her to, she was going to visit her family. So, you know, all of these kind of bizarre synchronicities, um, put, put me on a path that became more and more clear to until I actually had the opportunity through an invitation by a friend in 2003 to come down back down to the Amazon and visit her uh, where she was at that time traveling and experience ayahuasca, which I did in May of 2003. Sorry if that was totally like yeah. all over the place. Well, but, so but, you know, things. all of our lives are like, you know, bizarre. I could conditions. go, I could connect on any level there of like, I remember being obsessed with the electric Kool-Aid acid test when I was a senior in high school. I think I read it five times. And it's interesting. I think I read it again, maybe a couple of years ago. And my perspective on it was completely different. Back then when I read it, I was like, these are the coolest guys ever. We're giving everyone acid. This is awesome. And then now I write it with this kind of like critical, how irresponsible a lot of this was I, but um, that's just how our perspective changes as we get older. And I think the culture around psychedelics has changed as well. Um, that's for sure. But well, I still credit them. I mean, they, they'll forever be pioneers. And I think that's like yeah. a very good uh, way of describing it because you know we had some serious pioneers that at the time I they were my heroes and now I look at them as like kind of misunderstanding things but um, you know I think that you're going to find that almost every exploration the person that did the exploration uh, is revered for the pioneering but then the details of it, sometimes they were kind of assholes or like, they, <laughs> you know. Like yeah. They, but how could they not be is the thing I come back right. to. Right. Well, that's what there they, was they were, no framework at all for right. what they were experiencing. Right. And it's taken me 10 years of using psychedelics to even begin to have a sort of a framework. The spiritual component did not come into play at all until I did ayahuasca. Um so yeah, I, I, do I mean, I think a perfect example would be like the pioneers of ayahuasca, and this is totally not um, um, universal because my to this day, like Richard Evans Schultes is one of my greatest heroes, and I feel like he was always incredibly respectful to indigenous culture, and he is the true pioneer. You know, he's the he's the godfather of it all of ethnobotany, in my view. But the people that immediately followed him um, seem to have like a more uh, primitivist attitude towards indigenous culture where they kind of took a 
an understanding, uh, understandably like superior viewpoint that they were somehow superior to indigenous culture and there, therefore need not learn the, the complexities of their tradition. They just needed to like kind of get their hands on the ayahuasca, so to speak. Right. But now we're coming to a different point of view. So now that's where, like, I would say you might call them an asshole, you know, not because of now our understanding of oh, actually indigenous culture is certainly not primitive. If anything, it might be more advanced in many ways. And the fact that they weren't like, you know, wearing uh, digital watches and using cell phones doesn't uh, translate to the entire measurement of superiority or intelligence. You know, there's a whole field of intelligence that we're most definitely lacking that they do uh, have. Yeah, and I'm just starting to kind of uncover that ignorance in myself because even the first couple of retreats I did around ayahuasca, I wasn't particularly interested in indigenous wisdom. I wanted to experience ayahuasca and it was only after doing so a certain amount of times that i started to realize the framework that they had into place the ceremony and the songs and all those things how much that was contributing to it and how little i know and understand about it even still so that's part of one of the goals for me here is um and that's great that i get to talk to you is learning about some of that and helping translate it to a western mindset that could be dismissive or just ignorant of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I, I, like my life has become such a blessing because I came from a Western paradigm, what I might call a modern paradigm. Um, and you know, a perspective based on our influences growing up in the, in the modern world. And, but then I've spent 17 years in the Amazon rainforest and really like established an understanding of what I would call the ancestral paradigm or the indigenous perspective. And they're very distinct. Um, Carlos Castaneda, you know, his second book, I believe was called a separate reality. And that's a great phrase to describe it. Like they literally live in a separate reality, the way that they interpret their experiences and remember them is just very, very distinct from the way we would. And I got to a point where I kind of had one foot in each world, which gave me this real special opportunity to create the bridges to hopefully make understanding more easy both ways, you know, to, to bring concepts from each of those paradigms into better understanding in the other paradigm. And there is a, a, a level of overlap, even though I would call it small. And so that's really kind of what I feel my my life's path is to do and, and my life's work has been and continues to be building those bridges for understanding. And a big part of describing those two paradigms with specific regard to medicine is that we look at medicine in the West or in the modern world as a substance, whereas medicine in the ancestral traditions is a relationship. And, and there lies a, a huge gap in understanding. Uh, we tend to not uh, understand that we are actually relating to our medicinal experiences in the Western world. Um, but yet that is like a very focused 
intention of developing that relationship with medicine in the ancestral tradition. And, and I hope to like, through my conversations like, with you and as well as the work that we're doing at the foundation to like, um, deepen that understanding or the ability to understand how important and effective that relationship building process can be. Because I think that if we were to incorporate more understanding of relationship into our understanding of health and medicine, we would have much greater results. I agree. Can we break that down a little bit? Because what do you mean by relationship to medicine? I can certainly interpret that as like doing ayahuasca. There's a sense that you're building a relationship with ayahuasca. There's also a sense that just the space and the shaman and the people around you are also all part of the medicine that you're having this shared experience. Um, can you talk a little more about what you mean by relation? Yeah, totally. I mean, to me, relationship is a key bridge building term because we are all familiar with relationship, but oftentimes we don't consider relationship in that way. And that's why I'm, I feel like it's a, an advantageous term to try to explore. So in the Western world, I would say that it's so substance, so material based that it's just the pill, you know, it's just the, the medicine. You, you just take the medicine. But even if we just look at that and probably something that resonates with a lot of people who are currently taking pills, how you feel just about the pill. You know, this is like on the, the most basic level, mm -hmm. not even getting into the spiritual elements, just on the most basic level. How many people, when they take the pill container and they take the top off of the pill container and they reach into the pill container and take the pill out, feel grateful? How many feel a high consciousness energy? How many are like smiling? How many are, 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 are happy? How many say thank you, you know, for their ability to take this pill, which is ultimately in our culture, what is supposed to make them feel good. It's supposed to heal them. It's supposed to make them feel better. And yet my general assumption is that most people have negative emotions. Their relationship to the pill is negative they don't like the pill and yet that is what they're hoping will make them feel better it's kind of like saying i don't feel good i'm gonna go visit a person i hate that will make me feel better it's a bizarre idea you know we would never do that if you didn't feel good you don't call up the person that you don't like it just doesn't happen, you know? We know that because of our relationships. You do call the person you love. You do call the person that you have positive feelings about. But you never call someone to make you feel better that you don't like. Chances are they're going to make you feel worse. And yet that is actually the dynamic that so many people have when they're taking the medicine they're hoping will make them feel better, which is backwards. In my opinion, whereas when you take ayahuasca or any plant medicine, really, because it is a plant, there is automatically this, this like inherent appreciation, like this plant grew, 
it, it like came from the earth. It's like, you know, like there's this automatic appreciation when you go to your garden and there's a freaking tomato sitting there, like just waiting for you. It's like, you know, this God given creation for your benefit that like carries over into our feelings about plant medicine on, on a very deep level. So there's automatically this like dynamic of positivity when we are using plants, I feel over pharmaceutical medications. And that is like a very core basic understanding of the dynamics of relationship. If you are taking something that you appreciate, that you're grateful for, or that you love, then that substance will have a much higher chance of providing the benefit that you hope to achieve from taking it. So that's like the super core level, you know, and and so how can you cultivate that? Well, that is to me what the tradition does. Because the tradition takes that very simple idea that essentially like nature is providing us with the medicine that we need because we're a part of nature and nature is always striving for balance. So like if we have a deficiency, nature provides what we need to address that deficiency. That's a philosophy that we come to believe as truth. You know, we, we just come to see that as a, a natural phenomenon and a magic almost of nature. Um, and that is built into the tradition of plant medicine that is not built in to the tradition of pharmaceutical medication. In fact, pharmaceutical medication could be against that because we don't really feel the same way about man-made objects. You know, man-made objects, we could easily list, you know, 20 that we might attribute to ruining the planet. You know, those are the man-made objects. So there is this somewhat like degree where we say, oh, well, medicine is super advanced and they've done all this research and science, you know, has produced the this, this stuff that will like make us better. So there is that degree of it, but I don't feel for a lot of people and maybe this is like a change that we're experiencing now, but I think that a lot of people now feel more trust that nature will produce a perfect substance or an optimal substance over a, a, a guy that works for a multi-billionaire, billion dollar corporation that is seeking to increase their profits, you know, and that's kind of like the, the crux of, of maybe those two paradigms where we literally have like companies producing the medicines that are supposed to heal us profiting off of our sickness. And so how inspired are they to try to prevent those sicknesses or would they actually prefer that we stay sick? And, and, and that's an element too, you know, so it's obviously very, very complex, but that's the beginning level. Now, developing relationship with your own self through the healing experience, that's like a whole nother world where modern medicine doesn't really give any attention to that. You know, it's very, very rare that a doctor prescribes a pill and with it suggests that you look inside yourself to understand your past and how you came to be who you are. You know, that's, that would be like awesome, but it's not a common thing, you know, you know, that's not part of your prescription usually. 
Um, but yet, when you're working with something like ayahuasca, it's like a, the central focus of the process is that exact prescription. You're not just taking ayahuasca and then magically feel better. You're taking ayahuasca and you're looking inside yourself to understand how all of the events in the past and how you responded and interpreted and remembered them all have led to the perspective that you have now and what could you do to change it to make a better reality for yourself like that's a central theme of the experience so again like how you relate to yourself now becomes like a huge focus of one of the healing practices which would be the ancestral tradition where the other one is not even involved it's it's kind of like just take the pill and don't you know just take the pill keep eating hot dogs you know, keep uh, watching TV and, and you know, the pill will do everything. And, and that's very, very different point of view. And, and I think that we have so much to learn from the ancestral tradition to not have that point of view, to transform our, our basically ignorant understanding of the healing process to include consciousness and relationship, especially. Well said. Um, yeah, so part of my goal is to, I think people only learn that relational power of medicine and consciousness through hitting some kind of wall or learning it personally. That was certainly my case. Um, I had Lyme disease, which is a nasty bacterial infection, and I actually got it twice. The first time I got it, I healed it through ayahuasca and the power of consciousness and developing a relationship with myself. Then I got it again and the same thing happened. And the way I interpret it now is sort of that that was sort of the symptoms I was experiencing was sort of a reflection of the way I viewed myself and my relationship with myself. I, I, I in a way, felt that I deserved to be sick. And um, there was a certain amount of self-hatred there. And it was expressing itself through that way and sort of forcing me to confront it. Did you have a similar, is that what you drew to ayahuasca in any way? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that is, that's why I'm talking the way I'm talking. I, um, like every single person had childhood traumas and those childhood traumas essentially like cracked my vessel of self-love so that it would always leak and, and thus I could never keep loving myself. You know, and, um, you know, that's a metaphor, obviously, but another way of saying it is that I formed personal truths about myself, which sounds like you did too, like self-hatred, um, is literally like statements that become part of the foundation of who you are and how you describe yourself to yourself. You know, there are literal sentences that we say about ourselves that are true. They are, for, from our perspective, they are truth. And, and they are detrimental. And, the, and an example would, would simply be that I'm not good enough. It's my fault. I don't deserve this. You know, like I don't deserve a good life. I don't, you know, for whatever, however you want to phrase those sentences, the sentiment is expressed as a part of who you are. That's how powerful that truth can be. And when you live with that truth, 
in your core understanding of who you are, then it plays out in how you behave and how you perceive and how you relate. And all of those, it becomes the, the true infection is the effect that those detrimental personal truths that are inaccurate, but often caused by trauma have in your life. You know, that's the true infection because it infects all of your relationships and how you respond to your experiences is deeply infected by that. And then that is the rest of our, our lack of health or, or the degradation of our health is really an expression of that infection. Yeah. So can so to explore trauma for a second, I remember my pre-ayahuasca view of trauma was that it was like Batman. It was like cartoonishly had to be some huge thing where you watched your parents get shot and they bleed to death in front of you. And that's what trauma is. And I don't have that. I'm fine. Right. That was my view of trauma. And well, maybe you, how do you view trauma? My view has changed a bit. I'm curious what your definition of it is. Well, I mean, that is definitely trauma. That is definitely um, trauma. But, but, I, <laughs> but, but I think that what we now see or what I believe is that trauma is a, a very big spectrum. In fact, understanding things on spectrums to me is very, very helpful. Um, and, but, but what the key is like, if, if we were to, to compare like 50,000 people all over the world from all different cultures, that would give us this giant spectrum. But the reality is that each one of us has our own spectrum. And so whereas, you know, at that far end of the spectrum, like you said, like watching your parents get murdered in front of you, like that's going to be pretty traumatic or being a victim yourself of abuse of all the different forms of abuse like these, that might be at the far end of your spectrum when you're measuring the world. But when you're measuring your own spectrum, the, the most extreme is just your personal worst. That is the worst for you. And so, yeah, like out there, there might be people, you know, that have experienced such horrible things in their lives. And for them, that's their worst for sure. But for you, your worst is still the worst. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, perhaps equally as affecting you as something right, that could be right. someone else. It can be equally devastating to your personal truths. You know, and, and, and on your on your, in your personal life, in your personal perception of yourself, and and that to me is is kind of important because it, it's it's understandable to say, well, I've never, you know, I look, I didn't have my parents beat me every day, so so kind of like what you were saying, so like, so I can't like, you know, just tough out like whatever I had, but but yet whatever you had was still the worst for you. Because that's your spectrum. And, and that to me is an important understanding, I feel, because it, it gives us like a, a good understanding to how to relate to the trauma. Now, what is trauma? From my perspective, trauma is the formation of detrimental truths. That is like what I consider to be trauma. Like some, someone can have uh, an experience like, I use a, a simple explanation or a simple example of ro riding a roller coaster. 
you know, two people get on a roller coaster, sit right down next to each other in the exact same car, the exact same ride, the exact same day, everything is the same. And one person has the most terrifying experience of their life. And the other person is like hands up, loving it, screaming in joy. And, and afterward, what happens in the trajectory of those two people? Well, one, because of that one experience, will live a totally different life than the other. Because one may shy away from anything that could create a similar sensation that, that caused so much terror for them, take fewer risks, do fewer things that might be considered adventurous. And the other person might go the opposite direction. I want more risks. I want more adventure. And their, their entire lives might actually be shaped by that specific experience. Now, the, obviously, a roller coaster is, is, isn't the, the, maybe the best way to describe um, trauma, but it's a good example to understand. It's, it's much more about the response to the experience than the experience itself. And so, usually, a trauma is formed by an extreme emotional state. And to me, that would like be categorized mostly by extreme negative emotion would be like, fear and anger um and so if we just look at fear and then we try to imagine what would be an appropriate evolutionary response to fear physiologically it would make sense if you have extreme fear or you feel that your life may be in danger that the physiological response would be, I need to see as much as I can. I need to hear as much as I can. I need to feel all of my senses need to be hyper alert right now because I need to have the best chance I can of evading this danger and surviving this threat. And so if a child is in this uh, state of terror or extreme negative emotion, there will be a physiological response that will be an amplification of sensory perception. And in that state of amplified sensory perception, it's a great way to survive, but it's a very bad place to make decisions, especially decisions that relate to who you are. And if you do make a decision, which I would say is the principle of what trauma is, making a inaccurate decision about who you are based on the emotional, extreme emotional state that you're in, then because of the amplification of sensory perception, that truth doesn't just reside in your normal spectrum of perception. It now also resides outside your normal spectrum of perception. And that is inaccessible under normal conditions. So once you come back from that hypersensitive state, that amplification of sensory perception, you, you come back into a, a lesser spectrum of sensory perception. Now you have truths that reside outside of your ability to perceive them. And that to me is like a good way to understand why trauma exists. Even if you're aware of it, you just can't do anything about it. And that to me is because we can't get our awareness into the realms where the, the trauma resides because we just don't experience 
the sensory perceptive ability to do it. Our limitations biologically for perception are there. And it's this extreme negative emotion that created the amplification for, for our own survival, but unfortunately was also the platform of detriment in the creation of those harmful truths that become a part of who, who we are. And so what ayahuasca and other psychedelics do is they replicate or override that amplification of sensory perception, but they don't do it as a re response to extreme negative emotion. In fact, within the right set and setting and the right culture, which is a big part of the tradition to provide that, it's done in actually the opposite, high positive emotion. So you're doing it in gratitude, you're doing it in love and joy and in and, and a safe environment. But the important part is that you are expanding your awareness or expanding or amplifying your sensory perceptive ability to match or override the state that you created the trauma in. So now you're gaining access to every amount of awareness necessary to change the interpretation that led to the detrimental truth that you re refer to as the trauma. Does that make sense? Yes. Let me try to rephrase it back to you and see if I lost some pieces. So when the trauma originally forms in this very heightened emotional state and awareness, you can't stay in that state forever. So your sensory perceptions gate down, but the actual original heightened state that you experience that emotion or that trauma in, you then lose access to that. It's kind of buried in the body as well as yes. and so to release that trauma you need to gain access to that heightened state again you you just can't do it through our normal everyday consciousness but that trauma being in the body is manifesting as anxiety as depression as a feeling of disconnection from yourself making choices that you don't understand is that right? You got it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've experienced this, obviously, on ayahuasca. Um, I wonder if... I don't want to pick one that's too heavy, but I, I can remember, like, for example, uh, talking about that feeling of self-hatred I had. There was one ceremony I had the intention, like, what is this? What What's going on? Why do I hate myself? I don't... Consciously, I can say... I don't hate myself, but yet I feel there is this aspect of me that does. And I was so surprised with the result of I gained access to uh, childhood states that were very uh, sort of banal, like just being on the schoolyard and someone making fun of my big Junos or something. <laughs> and at my current level of awareness now, that would probably not really hurt my feelings. I have the equipment to deal with that. But back then, I didn't. And so I really felt again in my consciousness what it felt like to hear that for the first time and how much it hurt and how much I had built this constellation of protection mechanisms and lashing back out at people, um, all that stuff. I could feel it. But in the ayahuasca setting, I could reframe it. I felt it again. 
And it all felt a little ridiculous to me. I was like, oh, this kid, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That doesn't reflect me. And then even further, it reframed in a positive sense of like, oh, I have a big nose. That's great. I can get a lot of air. <laughs> air yeah. and the breath is like, that's a benefit. So I reframed yeah. and I did this kind of whole body scan of insecurities I have, things that people made fun of me for, all these defensive things. And all of them were reframed in a positive how I currently can view it. Do you have uh, a similar example? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I view it. Um, you know, my personal uh, trauma is related to my parents' divorce. And there was a specific memory that I didn't remember. It sounds similar to like your experience, but in ayahuasca, I like saw this scene playing out as I was a child that I instantly remembered once I saw it. But I didn't have a recollection of it prior to that. And, you know, seemingly like not a really important moment. But for me, clearly it was because my parents were having a fight and they were screaming at each other in the other room. And I was listening to their argument using a glass against the wall. I shared a room with my brother. My brother was crying because they were fighting, but he wasn't listening. He could just hear like the muffle of the tones, you know, but I could hear what they were saying because I was listening through the wall and I wasn't crying, but clearly I was in a heightened state and the energy, you know, was, it was obvious that there was this heightened state and my um, parents, for whatever reason, brought my name up in the argument and um, there was like, you know, a lot to the argument, but I was the fourth child and and we had four children. My, my parents had four children, so I was the youngest. And for some reason, it was like implied in their argument that they had enough money if we only had three kids, but we have four kids and we don't have enough money. And so... They brought my name up, you know, like as having not enough money for me. But they didn't talk about my other three brothers. It was me. And and in my understanding, granted, I was like eight years old. I thought, well, fuck, it's my fault. If I was never born, none of this would be happening. Yeah. My my three older brothers would be happily living in a family with two parents that didn't fight. But because I'm here, it's all going to shit. And then they separated. They got a divorce, you know, and, and that caused like all of these problems, all of which I thought were also my fault. And it created instantly in me a desire to refuse everything. You know, like I was a burden. That was, became like a truth for me. I was, I was a burden and I was the, the cause of the, the ruin of our family. And, and so I then refused everything. I don't, I'm not, I don't want a birthday party. Like, I don't want you to get me any presents for Christmas. I don't want to have new clothes for school. I'm not, you know, I, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse. Because I don't want to reinforce that I'm a burden that I already know I am. And so don't spend money on me. Don't give me anything to the point where like I would refuse a compliment. You know, if you said, oh, you're good at that. I'm, no, I'm not. You know, like I refused everything. 
And, and that's an example of like how it infected my relationships. Um, you know, every, every person I had any type of relationship with, I would refuse their positive emotions. I would refuse their love. I would refuse their gifts uh, in whatever form that meant. And, and so I, I was constantly emotionally isolating myself. And obviously that was a huge contributing factor into me then developing deep depression, suicidal thoughts, and then eventually becoming an opiate addict as a way to like numb all of that shit. And, and so, you know, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And then in ayahuasca, I was like, dude, I'm not, that wasn't my fault. You know, it was like, it's so absurd. Yeah, so you... obvious. Yeah. So obvious. Yeah. In fact, so easy, like so easy to just be like, dude, that is so not true. You know, and, and then instantly change the truth. Just like, uh, you know, like you think something, I don't know what a good example is. You think something's true about the world and then you finally come right face to face and you're like, oh, fuck, that's not right. You know, like, you, know, you, you quickly, like, quickly change it. You can change your mind in an instant. And the yeah, same right. thing can happen with ayahuasca about your entire perception about yourself. The entire foundation of you may be invisible to you and then something clicks into place and you can reframe it. Right. And so that like you're calling it reframing. I think I want to go more powerful in my language of it. So I'm going to say like I transformed the detrimental truth into a more accurate but also beneficial truth. Um, but yeah, like reframing it is another way of saying it. I reinterpreted uh, my experience and then remembered it differently. Now, now I will always remember, like I can tell you that experience, but I'm actually remembering the transformation of that truth. You know, whereas prior to the ayahuasca, if I were to remember it, I would have remembered it as the trauma, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. if you, if you remember your reframing, that becomes a totally different memory than remembering trauma. And you're, you're almost like remembering an experience as a, a source of empowerment. And whereas prior you were remembering the exact same experience as a source of degradation of health or, or you know, of destruction. So that idea of transformation, I don't think it's entirely accurate for me that I never fell back into those old belief systems. But what you're saying about having that sort of deep-seated memory of the transformation to fall back on. It's like, that's almost like a, a ray of light that you have that can, when the dark part starts coming up, that just shines through and sort of dissolves it. It's not that the dark belief systems don't keep occurring and the thought patterns, but now there's something that you can combat them with. Is that how you experience it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I like the term infection, because, you know, if you have a source of infection, it keeps like it keeps infecting. But if you cut the infection, so like there is no more infection going out, that is an essential part of the healing process. But that doesn't mean that like all the other infections disappear. They're all there, too. It's just the source of the infection has now been healed, which is obviously an incredibly important part. But then as you go forward, like there's still so much infection in your life, you know, so 
especially when when I you know say like it infects all of your relationships. Well, if if I go from self hatred to self love, and then I go and talk to my parents again. You know, it's not like they, like the dynamic, like the 20 years of, of infected relationships don't just like heal just because I love myself. That's like a whole nother path, you know, de- uh, uh, it took me like a decade probably to, to get to the point where I felt like I had uh, healed my relationships. But because, that, because that infection is. was so, so deep, but, but I never could have come close to healing it if I hadn't heal the source so it obviously needs to be i mean that's a, that's kind of another like pinpoint of the the difference of paradigms one in the western medicine is very uh focused it seems on on symptom management you know which is like dealing with the outer levels and and the other is very very focused on core treatment you know like let's get down to the cause and unfortunately, we don't really see that much attention on cause treatment in Western medicine. In fact, I, I'm so like dissatisfied, as I'm sure so many other people are, when the cause is called like a chemical imbalance. Yeah, yeah. Not as if what that, a cop out. If, yeah, like that's a cause. Like that's a that's just another symptom. What caused the chemical imbalance? Like why? Let's let's take this to the end. You know. But uh, we don't really see that very often. And to me, we don't see that very often because modern medicine just seems to be uh, happy, ignoring consciousness, which is a bizarre phenomenon to me. But here we are. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of paths we could go down of how we got to this point where consciousness was so ignored. Um well, you can't see it or touch it or, or measure it. So there you go. I mean, when we had the scientific revolution, uh, you know, we we threw away all the stuff that you couldn't see, touch, or measure, and we just started off fresh. And I, I get the like the rebellion against the oppressive nature of our religious authorities and things like that. That was well deserved. But I kind of think maybe we threw out the baby with the bathwater by starting off with the only things that we were going to call true are what we can see, touch, and measure. Because consciousness, to me, is by far the most powerful element of our reality, and it should be the forefront of our attention. But it has... I mean, we have something called the double-blind study, and that's considered the gold standard. Why? Because it removes consciousness. You know, it's like we were like taking such a backwards approach where like, yes, if we have a study where we do it this way and this way, people's thoughts won't get in the way of our understanding. You know, like, what are you talking about? People's thoughts are what we should be looking at specifically. Well, and we, never... have, we, we have recognition of the uh, what we call the placebo effect, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and everyone knows the placebo effect. No one denies the placebo effect. But whenever you say placebo effect, it's often just in front of it. You know, that's just the placebo effect. You're like, oh, right. That's just when someone's thoughts healed them completely. <laughs> You know, yeah, and, that, and that's throw that the bad data thing. out. Yeah, like throw that data out. We're not concerned with that stuff where people just thought they were healed, and then it turns out physiologically they were healed. 
doing all the tests that you want, they were actually 100% healed just by thinking about it. Yeah, just, just, you know, that's just the placebo effect. There have also like, been. Everything should be the placebo study. Let's just study that. Well, that's what I was going to bring up is I've, I've read a couple. They did one with, have you heard about the one with acupuncture where they gave two different groups acupuncture and one group, the doctor gave a lot of care and asked them about what they're feeling and blah, blah, blah. And the other group, they just stuck a bunch of needles in them. Right. So again, it's taking that, um, it's proving that even acupuncture, the placebo or the consciousness part of it, the compassion, the relationship that you have with your practitioner is just as crucial as whatever energy points you're manipulating. Or more. What do you mean, or more? Or more. Oh, it's more important. Right, right. Yeah. It's amazing to me. And this, for me, this is. I've only come to this realization maybe in the last few years. So it's, you've been in this world longer than me. You probably have more. I still have traces of doubt. I have, uh, you know, misgivings and that it can't be that simple, can it? And yet I have certain experiences that are so strong and unequivocally, unequivocally there. I can't refute them. And it's, did you have the same journey of like, I think we shared an early interest in psychedelics and the mind and things like that, but this must have been a long path for you to get to where you are. Did you have? Uh, well, I mean, everyone has that long path to get to where we are. <laughs> to, 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 to me, like, I mean, consciousness is, uh, you know, it's, it's basically like trying to understand the universe. In fact, for me, I've come to a point where consciousness is the universe. Like that's, they're one and the same for me. Um, but, but that doesn't mean I understand it. <laughs> you know? I, I, I recognize the power of thought to be by far the most powerful thing in the universe it, to the point where it is the universe. Um, and how we choose to shape our thoughts is absolutely important. And, and I do owe my early um, study of philosophy, like I have a degree in philosophy. And I, while I was studying philosophy, I was taking LSD often. And, and the two like definitely came together where there were revelations during my um, psychedelic experiences having, you know, the inevitable focus be philosophy because that's what I was studying and getting to the point where I was like, what you think is real is what is real, you know? And like what you think is the truth is what is truth. I remember right now actually having this like drag out argument with a biology major because I was refuting her, her like ideas of how scientific studies prove what is true. And I was like, but you're just choosing to believe those studies. Like, if I don't believe those studies, then they are not true. And she was like, no, but they still are, whether you believe them or not. And I'm like, not for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe now, like, we're seeing that play out in a really powerful way because we kind of have two polarized realities happening right in our country where, where we have people that 
believe such distinct things, like almost opposite things to be true. It's tricky with what you're saying, though, because there are certain levels of objective truth. Um, well, maybe there aren't, but, you know, this was a big wake-up call for me with the coronavirus and the pandemic of a lot of my friends who are a little more out there than me seeing some of what they believe in terms of conspiracy theories and things like that in the spiritual community, it made me very uncomfortable with like, I don't know how to refute this for you or if I should, but I think some of the beliefs you have are destructive in another way of like, you have gone too far one way in believing that truth is entirely subjective. There's this weird overlap between far not even far left but just people who kind of reject paradigms and like far right Trump people <laughs> do you know what i'm saying totally no i mean i mean i i agree like it is incredibly complex like i said like to try to understand consciousness but i think that you you said one key word that i feel was super important which was destructive so like if you have because we the, the reality is that we have all of us, it's impossible not to do this. We have all decided to trust particular information and decided not to trust other particular information. We can't rely on experiential evidence only, you know? No. Yeah. Then we would all be like doubting that Australia exists or something. Like, you know, so <laughs> we're, we're always like measuring and mitigating and, you know, trying to see where our trust lies. Like, do I trust that source of information? Do I trust this source of information? Do I distrust that source? And all of that is like this become this incredibly complex process for us to determine what we do feel is the truth. But the key to me is that term destructive or the flip side beneficial. Like if I choose to believe this, is my life going to get better? Or is my life going to get worse? And and that should be, I would say, a great guide in how we do decide what is true or what is not. Um, you know, but ultimately, I, I do still feel like we are making that choice. You know, and then a lot of times we like to say that we're um, backed up by the consensus. You know, like if that's like somehow a validating feature, yeah. but I, I'm not so sure. I mean, obviously we believe it to be a validating feature. And so that becomes a truth that we then use to uh, validate other truths. You know, uh, scientific evidence could be done the same way. I read a study and so therefore, you know, that validates this because I believe that a scientific study will purport the truth or, you know, that it, it becomes so complex. But in the end, I think all of us have this, a very, very similar goal, which is that we want to be healthy and happy in the life that we live. And so if we are going to give ourselves the freedom to make these decisions about what we believe and don't believe to be true, let's use that as the compass that helps us to navigate towards the optimal truth for us in our lives. And, you know, because what we were just talking about with trauma is the same thing. You know, yeah. it, it's what yeah. we chose to be true, but when we chose it, it became true, you know, and, and when we chose to reframe it, a new truth emerged. And, and that is always the case. I think that we have a definition of truth that implies it can't be changed. 
but that isn't really resonating with our actual experience where truth does change. And even in science, or perhaps especially in science, truth has always changed. And, and that, you know, kind of softens the meaning of truth, perhaps. But I think most of the time we still kind of keep that solid idea that truth is unchanging. But it's not really matching with our experience where truth has changed in my life. So many truths have changed. And, and so, you know, like, I think maybe that is like where we're stuck, where we, we have an idea that truth doesn't change, but yet we also recognize that our own personal truths have changed. And, it, you know, I, I guess I, I don't really have an answer for, for that other than, again, like consciousness trumps it all, you know. No, what you're saying is so cool because I can see this playing out in a fractal way of like, yes, truth changes. Sometimes sugar is good according to the study. Sometimes sugar is bad. You can take it on that level. You can also take it on the level of as we get older, we reinterpret different phases of our life. Oh, I was so dumb as a teenager. What was I doing? I'm sure in five years from now, I'm going to look back at this current version of myself like, oh my God, I was so ignorant. I was so unaware. I didn't understand. So yes, our personal truths change. The scientific consensus changes. Frequently, just deeper layers become uncovered. Like, oh, we've got it all figured out. Now it's neutrinos and quarks. There's going to be a, a deeper layer of subatomic particles that we discover, and they interact in a certain way. Right now, we have a quantum mechanic view that's blowing our minds. There's going to be an even deeper layer, more subtle layers under that. It's never-ending. <laughs> right. Wow. So, I mean, I, I think that another element might be, I, and I guess what I'm trying to say is like, let's take the focus away from what we think is really there, like that concept, and let's put it back into what works best. And, and honestly, that is kind of always the, the goal of science. You know, science isn't never really like saying what's really there. It's always been what works best. Like, well, if we adopt this model, what can we achieve? You know, can, if, if using this model, could we build satellites that give us GPS? Yes. Based on this scientific model, we can do that. That would be great. Let's do that. You know, and maybe that will be replaced with a different model that allows us to do something different. But it's always kind of been more about what can we do if we believe this model? Uh, if if we believe this to be true, and and, and that's kind of what it, a scientific process is defined by. You know, let's take an yeah. assumption. Let me take this assumption. We call it an assumption, and let's investigate it and see if we can produce data that would confirm the assumption. You know, like it, it's 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 all built in there. But then, unfortunately, the layman then kind of, you know, as you get further removed from the actual investigation as a scientist then you you're like hey did you hear science just proved you know like that's how we end up saying right. it you know and then now i just believe this one single fact even though the details of it are always like quite uh more complex and and that's the reality of our lives as well and 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 but to me there is like a, an incredible empowerment in that you know there's an incredible empowerment that that really to me says 
I can take all of my life experiences and I can choose how I interpret them and how I connect those dots that essentially get me to a set of memories that I refer to as reality. All my reality is just a group of memories. And it may be a memory of a particular piece of information coming into my awareness. And it could be a memory of an actual experience that I had and how I chose to respond to it. But all of it is really a collection of memories. And I actually have a power involved in that memory process of what I choose to remember, how I choose to remember them. And, And even saying it, you know, of course, like there's this idea caught up in well, what's really, what's the reality, you know, like there's a still this, like, because we're, we're ingrained with it, you know, there's still this lingering thought, no, but there is just this one truth. And, and maybe I can resolve that by taking the ancestral traditions perspective, because, sure. because right now we kind of feel like I'm an individual and I walk around, I happen to walk around on the same rock floating through space as you and um and we just coincidentally are just individuals sharing a similar environment of cohabitating this planet that might be a way to understand like maybe the westernized point of view about our existence but the the ancestral tradition is quite different it would say no 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 the earth is a singular conscious animal it is a being and it is alive and we are the cells in that animal we are a part of that animal and that animal communicates to us through a grand wisdom that we could never possibly imagine to keep us in line to to make sure that we're like accomplishing our specific tiny role as a cell in this great body that is a conscious being and and so what we recognize to be natural laws, maybe those are the personal truths of the earth. You know, the earth has its own consciousness and it also believes its own reality. It also has its truths. It also has its belief system and its memories of reality. And we can recognize them as the puny cells that we are in a similar fashion that a cell in my body of which there are 50 trillion might have some sense of consciousness based on my consciousness. And so if I shift my consciousness, which would be an example of the placebo effect, essentially, I shift my consciousness, my cells actually pick up on the shift and alter their behavior as a result, which then plays out into the actual healing of myself because my consciousness was shifted. And so that can then be extrapolated or like, you know, amplified out into this macro scene where I am the cell and the body of the being that I'm a part of is the earth. And then of course the earth becomes a cell in the body of the being of the universe or even an electron, you know, like that's really what it kind of looks like. Like if we're to use scientific modeling, the earth is an electron in an atom that is part of a cell that is part of the universe. And that's how like crazily huge it gets. So the universe has its own personal truths as well. 
and we can recognize them. And for that reason, they seem much more solid than my personal truths. But in the end, they are perhaps still incredibly fluid, except on varying scales on the spectrum of immensity. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny to think of, and I do sort of think of the Earth as a giant organism now, but does that mean the Earth has its own traumas? The Earth is interpreting its experience as it goes and might be uh, transforming its own pain and its own things like that. It's like, that is a very psychedelic idea that's hard <laughs> to bring into words, but that the universe itself is this uh, one linked thing that is moving towards something, evolving towards something, changing its own consciousness towards something, the way that we as individuals are. Right. Well, I mean, honestly, if you believe in God, to me, that definition of God as that being, the universe, mm -hmm. the conscious being, that feels real good to me. Yeah. I think anyone who's done psychedelics has maybe had some inkling that or that experience. And that's kind of a question of like, what, what do you do with that? How does it inform your personal world that you're going to create and how are you what is your role in this and what how do we know that do we does it come down to listening and just kind of following intuition which we seem to have forgotten how to do completely <laughs> yeah i mean i definitely think that would be a big part of it i think that would lend itself like if you believe that you are part of nature or part of the earth i think nature seems like a more like resonant idea you know i'm an animal that's an animal that that deer is an animal the bird i see is an animal i am an animal like even within our our westernized point of view it's kind of hard to ever deny that we're not a part of nature um and so you know once you get into the earth i think maybe you, you start like getting into the new age fringe or something uh, which I'm fully for, but I, I recognize that it's not so universal, but nature seems to be quite universal. Like yes. I would, I'd be surprised if someone's like, I'm not part of a nature, you know, like, what are you, are you made by aliens? Which, uh, okay. But, um, but I would say most people would probably agree that we're a part of nature. And so if we, if we want to just stick with, I'm a part of nature, the implications of that to me already lend themselves to intuition. You know, if, if I'm a part of nature, then, then nature is like helping me. Nature is providing for me. Nature is like keeping me in line. Nature has a plan. Like all of these kind of come into fruition. Just if we look at our backyard or if we look at a forest, or, you know, we, we just see like, oh, shit, man, all of this stuff is like working together. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then if we like do what I was doing earlier, kind of like translate it. Kind of like, oh, well, in biology class, I learned that we all have cells and all these cells like form into all these different parts. And my, you know, some cells become a liver and the liver has this function and some cells become the lungs and the lungs have this function. And some cells are this and that and this, but all of it like combines to be this unbelievably intricate and complex miracle that we call life that we exist every day in. And, and so then you like think, well, shit, I'm not alone. I'm, I'm not like walking around having to make decisions to figure out my whole life. I'm part of something way bigger and way smarter. Like if I don't have the answer, that's understandable. 
I'm it just, takes some of the pressure off, right? Yeah, it's right. Yeah, yeah, it's re- it's totally relieving, and and it, it's like somebody's got your back. You know, not just somebody. Like this crazy, powerful force has your back. It, it, I use this example often when I say, like, a tree never doubts. You know, a, a tree never worries that it might not be growing in the right direction. It just, it, it's impossible to imagine that. And why? Because it stays connected. It, it, it just knows that it's part of nature. There's no question about it. Unfortunately, we have those questions. We have those doubts. But the more we recognize the reality of our natureness, our naturalness, but our, our part of our role as part of nature, then the the less I feel we have those doubts. You know, the more we see that what is happening to us in our lives is part of what nature wants. And, and then we shape the way we respond to those experiences based on a trust that it is the way it's supposed to be. We start to look for the opportunities of our experience and the way that we respond to them more than, you know, maybe judging them if, if we isolate ourselves as if we're alone on the planet. You, you, know, you don't shake your fist and say, why me? Uh, as if you're like angry that you've been treated unfairly. Now you say, okay, I guess this is what's supposed to happen. And, and so you, it reframes your attitude about how you choose to respond to those experiences in a positive way. And, and again, like getting back to that idea of like truth being destructive, you know, which would you prefer to have an attitude that shapes the way you respond to your experiences in a positive way or have an attitude that shapes the way you respond to your experiences in a negative way? I and mean, it's a no brainer. So if that becomes our motivation and if psychedelics can help us to gain momentum in the positive way, then let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, it's kind of like if, if an adverse event or something that you perceive as bad happens to you right now, if I suddenly find out that I owe the IRS $7,000, <laughs> I don't know how this example will play out, but there, I can imagine my reaction would be to really push that away and really hate that and feel like a victim or whatever, whereas a different mindset would be to invite it in and say, okay, what can I learn from this? I guess on some level I should should have paid my taxes or I should be more responsible. I should think about how my actions might affect me and others down the line because now that I owe all this money, I can't pay for my kid or whatever. I don't know. This wasn't the best example. But... No, no, but let's stick with it. Okay. So the, the, the first part is you're trying to understand it in in the past. But the second part that I think would be more important is the trust you have in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and that to me is like more important, obviously. Um, we can change the way we reframe the past and that, that's always going to be beneficial. But it's kind of more important, I would say, for most of us to change the way that we're going to proceed into the future, you know. And so this is an exercise that I often like tell people um, which was a lesson that I've learned through psychedelics, but really just all of us recognize it in our lives. 
we have all been there. We all had some shitty thing. Like, I'll give you an example. My first trip to Peru, I went to Machu Picchu. I was on a real tight budget, so I took a bus from Lima to Cusco. Now, you have to go over the Andes Mountains. The bus ride was like 24 hours, um, but it was way cheaper than flying. And I didn't speak Spanish. I was all by myself. I had a t-shirt and shorts on because it was hot in Lima and put all my rest of my stuff was up on the roof of the, the bus. And then we went up into the Andes Mountains where it wasn't so hot and then crashed head on into a Mack truck. Now, that sounds like a bad thing. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, fuck, you know, <laughs> I'm all by myself. My passport is like up in that bag, you know, like, well, would anyone even identify me if I had just died? I'm now freezing on the side of the road where there's snow everywhere and I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. You know, this is like about as shitty as it could get. Yeah. But I met three people that were on that bus. They were all traveling as individuals and they were from France, from Denmark and uh, sorry, from Scotland and from the Netherlands. And we were all individuals by ourselves traveling together. And we all spoke English. The only four people on the bus that spoke English. One of the guys, the guy from Netherlands gave me his um, jacket so that I wouldn't freeze to death. And we all became friends standing on the side of the road. And when we finally did get to Cusco, we decided to, to stay together. So we got hotel rooms together. We reduced the cost of our trip. And we did the hike to Machu Picchu together. And we reduced the cost of all that. And we were there to support each other and became really good friends. And in the end, I didn't have enough money to do the trip. Even to the point where at the end, I slept on the floor of a hotel room because I had nothing to chip in, but it was their hotel room. And the manager let me sleep on the floor and not pay anything because that's how slim my budget was. I wouldn't have been able to make it to Machu Picchu if I hadn't made friends with them because I wouldn't have had the money to pay for it. Once I got to Cusco, it would have been like a crazy letdown. So like I owe so much of the ex incredible experience I had to the bus fucking crashing head on into a Mack truck. And I look back now with such gratitude that that horrible thing happened that day, which obviously isn't horrible anymore, but at the time it was. But now I see how it played out and I'm so thankful. You know, that's a, a true story from my life, but it's a story that every one of us has, you know. You're like, oh, I went skiing. I broke my leg. It was horrible. I had to go to the hospital. I fell in love with a nurse. We're married. We have three kids. It's the greatest <laughs> day of my life. You know, like yeah, yeah. everyone has a story like that. And it proves to us that our judgments in the moment are very rarely going to stay the same. And and again, that those are the truths, you know. And and so if you have the IRS tell you you owe you $7,000, you can say this is the worst day of my life right now. But if you remember, well, fuck, all those other things worked out great. You know, every time I thought something bad happened, it ended up like showing me all this wonderful stuff. So why am I thinking that this won't do the same? If I were to project out from, from where I am now to the future, I can guarantee that I will look back at this and say that turned out to be a great thing because to pay for that, I ended up having to get a second job and that second job turned out to be this opportunity for a whole new career change. I mean, it was so much more satisfying and I never would have done it if I didn't owe the money that needed me to get that job. And so because of that imagination, 
of the projection forward looking back positively, you can then open your eyes to the opportunities that will come and then embrace them with an attitude of responding positively to your experiences. So even then, you know, like there's this great chance that moving forward in the future, you'll have a better life as a result of it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think something that resonates within that for me is also, you know, the platitude is trust the universe, but also don't be afraid to step into the unknown. Like I imagine when you went to study with a curandero for four years, we well, didn't know it was going to be for four years at that point, but I'm assuming you left a lot behind. There was an incredible amount of fear. <laughs> Loved ones in your life were probably like, what the fuck is Carlos doing? <laughs> uh, and on some level, you knew how to trust something that something good would come from this if you just saw it through, if you just showed up for it. Right. I mean, honestly, that's almost a weird one because looking back, I, it feels way more crazy now. You know, like looking back, I'm like, dude, how did I? That was insane. You know, like to, that I yeah. did that. But I thankfully have the memory of it, and and my memory of it at the time. Uh, I mean, looking back, but the the t at the time, my perspective was, if I don't do this, I will regret it for the rest of my life. And even I, I you know, I, I knew how crazy it was. I, I definitely knew that this was a crazy decision, but I felt so sure of it. And that was because of my experiences in the ayahuasca ceremonies that I, I just felt like if I don't do this, I will be turning my back on my destiny. That's literally like the phrase that I said to myself. Uh, about recognizing how crazy it is and doing it anyway was was like I had to do it, and obviously I'm unbelievably grateful that I did do it. But let me just tell you a couple of things okay. <laughs> that that made it so sure for me. Sure. So you know the third ceremony, um, the Corandero invited me to be a student. He told me that that it was my path and that I was like to be a healer. And he said, you know, if you want, like, you can live with me and I'll, I'll teach you. And what an honor, you know, like, regardless of what decision, what an honor to have someone say that to you, especially someone that had, I had already taken um, such a shine to, like, I had so much respect for this person uh, because of the transformation that had already happened within me. And, but I was also able to recognize the impact of that. So when I accepted his offer the next day, I believed it. You know, I believed what he said. And, and that was confirmed by my experiences, which are too, you know, too, too many to go into detail. But when I went into the fourth ceremony, I went in thinking I was a healer. You know, I, I, it was, it totally shaped my, my consciousness going into that ceremony between those two because I had accepted his offer. So now officially I was, it wasn't like when I come back, I'll be mm. an apprentice. I'm an apprentice now. The moment I decide, you know, the moment I accept the offer, I'm an apprentice right now. And so that was a huge shift to the point where I had so much confidence that I healed myself in the fourth ceremony of a physical issue that doctors couldn't diagnose, but I figured it out 
in that ceremony and healed it because I knew I could. Because the previous ceremony, I was told I could, and I confirmed that belief and made it a personal truth of mine. And so I recognized those things, you know, especially being a philosophy major. Like, I recognized, like, oh, shit, dude, like, I knew I would heal myself. And so I did, you know, and, you know, again, that kind of lends itself to the, to, to what we've already recognized to be the placebo effect. When you know that you're healed, you are. And, and so that added to the fascination, you know, that was yeah. like, that was like a triple confirmation. I was like, this is the most incredible thing in the world. You know, like I, I did, I knew I would heal myself and then I did it. And like, and I, I say I did it, like maybe the specifics of that. I left my body, my spirit left my body in the ceremony. I had a digestive issue and I shrunk my spirit down, went into my mouth, down into my stomach. And I looked around as if I was like exploring my own body and, and then found a, a squid in my stomach that was all tangled up and, and wrapped in, in my intestinal Track, like that area where the stomach goes into the intestines to clog up my stomach with this dark murky water so that it could live in my body as a parasite and and I removed it and then from then on I never had the symptoms and then later I would actually talk to a specialist of parasites who said that there's a parasite that looks just like a squid that often affects people so you know whatever it didn't really make a difference as to whether it was verified by some doctor, I knew I was healed and I was from then on, but I did it in such a fascinating way. You know, it was like so incredibly fascinating. So this was like absolute confirmation. I'm doing this. This is done. On my plane ride back home, though, I, I did have a life. I, I wasn't just going to stay there. I needed to go home. I lived with my girlfriend. I had a house, a car. Like I had a bunch of stuff. I couldn't just be like, "Hey, uh, get rid of that stuff." And uh, honey, uh, we're broken up. Bye. You know, like yeah. I had, I had to go home. And so I did for six months, and you know, tied up all those loose ends. And on the plane ride back, though, once I got into like the U.S. airspace, actually, I started to say, "What the hell are you doing?" You know. Like the reality of coming home sunk in and my old like ideas started to really emerge where I was like, dude, this is the craziest. What, what are you going to do? You know, like you're going to like go home and sell your house and move out and, and sell all your possessions and, and just end your whole life and move to the Amazon rainforest to be a shaman. Like what the fuck is that? dude? You can't, <laughs> that's like absolutely insane. And so when I landed, I changed my mind. Mm. I changed it somewhere on the plane, you know. So by the time I landed, it was a, a great story and a great experience, but it wasn't going to be the defining moment of my life path anymore. And and then my friend picked me up at the airport, and he really wanted me to meet his friend that he had started dating when I was in Peru. And I met her, and she asked me, if I had been in Peru, maybe I met two of her friends who live in Peru. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah, there's like, what, like 
15 million people or however many that live there. Yeah, yes. Yeah, right. 16 million people. Oh, you went to a country of 16 million people? Did you meet John? You know, like... Yeah. <laughs> like the most ridiculous, like, idea. But before I could say it, she said their names. And of course, of course, yes, I had met them. I lived with them. They were the ones that brought me to the shaman. They were in every ceremony with me. I literally lived in their house during my stay. And now I'm meeting the first person in the United States that I meet is their best friend. Impossible. And she started dating my best friend while I was in Peru. Like, impossible. Just absolutely impossible. So I say, like, yeah. I lived with them. I definitely met your friend. I drank ayahuasca five times with them. And she took my hand. You know, I'll never forget it. And she, she looked me dead in the eyes and she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I know it's important. And no matter what anyone else thinks, you must do it. And I just looked up, gave the thumbs up. <laughs> message received you know like that never in a million years could you ever convince me that that was a coincidence you know that to me was just a message specifically for me by nature by the earth by the universe to make sure that i did follow through on my path and so I immediately at that moment switched back like, yeah, I, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Like that was so powerful confirmation for me that regardless of how crazy it seemed, I had no choice but to do it. It was exactly what, like I, I call it my destiny. Like it was exactly what I was meant to do. And, and so then when I returned, I came with that truth. You know, this is what I'm meant to do. That became a truth for me, and that was a, a very profound truth for me because it enabled me to take an attitude where no matter what obstacle I faced, I would overcome them because this is what I was meant to do. And so we should all strive to get to a point where we can manifest a truth like that, where we can, where we can believe a truth like that in our lives, where we are meant to do this because it will create the optimal attitude for us to overcome all of our obstacles. And give a sense of purpose to life where as long as you're on that path, you feel like, yes, I'm doing what I should be doing. And again, neg negative events that come towards you no longer are perceived as negative necessarily. They're just perceived as, oh, what another fun obstacle that I need to overcome on right. my path. Right. Well, there's, I mean, there's something really beautiful in the Shipibo tradition. Um, they call it getting tested. Mm -hmm. And... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful uh, way of understanding. It's not a beautiful phenomenon, but it's like a recognition that like shit happens, essentially, like there will always be something that happens, an obstacle to overcome a challenge, you know, some some problem will always happen. But it is, as they would say, like it is the plants testing you. They're teaching you what you're really capable of. And so they want to see how you respond. If you're going to take the attitude to overcome it, 
if you're going to take the attitude like, I got this, or if you're going to like shy away and, 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 and quit or give up. And obviously they don't want you to do that, but it's the test. It's just like when you need to complete the grade of school that you're in, you, you take a test and you prove that you learned everything you were supposed to learn. And by doing so, you are allowed to move to the next grade level. And then the test gets harder. And each year, it gets harder. Each grade level comes with harder tests. But they're harder because you're capable of passing those tests or not just passing, but acing those tests, provided you learn the lessons that are given to you in that level. And and it's such a, I mean, to me, it's just such a helpful way of looking at the world, you know, where every time a challenge comes your way, you're like, now is my chance to demonstrate what I've learned. Now is my chance to like show that I am ready to go to the next level. And, and I mean, just from like, hopefully the ability to imagine what it would do to your attitude, if you were to believe it, it's clearly a great way to optimize your chances for achieving your goals, you know? Yeah. Yes, it is. I wonder, this is something I wanted to ask you about just because it bounces around in my head and you might have perspective on it. There's an attitude that I ran into among mostly Western people that ayahuasca is this infinite loving being. It's uh, the mother that is there to help us in all of our problems. And I found that attitude hard to square away with only what I've read, not experienced, but that ayahuasca can also be used for evil sorcery and in manipulations of games of power and things like that. And it never rang true to me that ayahuasca is just light. That isn't how my experiences have gone. Um, I'm wondering what the indigenous wisdom behind that is. Or do you know what I'm talking about when yeah. I say, okay. Yeah. I mean, um, to me, ayahuasca is, uh, definitely a spirit. It's something that I we we haven't really talked about. I've been like kind of purposely staying in a lane that I feel is what I would call universal, you know. So sure, but 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 we should talk about it, um, even if we like lose some people. Um, it's a it's a spirit. She or he or it. I, I'm gonna stick with it to be honest because I've I've asked specifically if it's male or female, and the response was neither. Um, but so, doesn't it also, I mean, my vision of the spirit, has traditionally it does seem to take a female form, although I don't, maybe that's different for different people. That's the convention that I seem to get and has been mostly my experience, but I believe... But you were probably drinking in Peru. Um, if in you were Ecuador. Drinking, or Ecuador, right. Either of those, um, if you were drinking with a Titan in Colombia, they would refer to it as Padrecito. Um, mm. So, like, they, you know, like, culturally, it's one or the other. Um, mother or father or grandmother. I mean, to me, all of that relates a lot to the dynamics of the culture within with regard to the relationships of parents to children. Um, and I definitely feel like it's it makes a lot of sense that we feel that nature 
um, because it is, you know, very, very similar dynamic. When you're a child, you look to your parents and they are like gods to you. You know, yeah. they have all the answers. They know everything and can do everything. They're like superheroes in your eyes, at least when you are a child. And that feeling is very similar to the feeling that we have when encountering or in the presence of the spirit of ayahuasca. So I, I, I definitely like feel that way. And of course, I have totally had visions of ayahuasca as uh, a female, but but I've had visions of ayahuasca as a lot of things. You know? <laughs> um, I, I think I think there's a component that I also believe where ayahuasca presents itself as what you will most likely listen to or pay attention to. Um, and so for that reason, like I could see that it might present itself as a mother, which co not coincidentally in Peruvian culture, the mother is like, it's a very matriarchal culture, very uh, prominent mother in power culture where the, the mother of the household is definitely the most powerful member of the family. Uh, whereas in Colombia, I'm not that familiar, but my guess would be that perhaps in Colombia, the father has a more powerful position in the dynamic of the family. I, I'm not sure. Uh, those are some ideas for sure. But but regardless, like if it appears as a mother or a grandmother, there is, I feel like, a conscious decision for that. Just like if it appears as a jaguar or an anaconda or even a hummingbird, all of those things to me, I'm going to give them all my undivided attention. Like if, if I see a hummingbird, which is a lot easier because I've seen them, uh, I give it my, you know, like if you see a hummingbird, it's not like, oh, there's a hummingbird. You know, it's more like, oh, there's a hummingbird. Oh, you know, like I'm going to watch it the entire time yeah, until yeah. it flies away. Like I'm just, I know I'm watching this thing because it's a hummingbird that it like requires it. And obviously I, if I, I have had some interactions with snakes, not anacondas, but I've you know been in the jungle quite a few times. If you see a snake, you're not like, oh, there's a snake. You know, you're like, oh, there's a snake. Like, you know, I'm watching it 100% of my attention. You know, it's got me. Yeah, yeah. And a jaguar, thankfully, I have not seen in the jungle. But clearly, if I saw one, I would not be looking away at all. You know, it would have 100% of my undivided attention. And so I do feel like ayahuasca and other plant spirits choose to appear in forms that they know will result in us giving them our attention and receiving whatever those lessons are on a deeper level, which is the goal, I would assume. Um, so, fuck, I forgot where we were going with that. We're talking about that ayahuasca is a spirit. Right. So, so right. it can so, present in different forms. Yeah. yeah. And depending on the morality, culture as well. The, the, the yeah, morality, morality part. Yeah. So, that, that to me is where we're, we're projecting our, you know, our own morality. Um, you know, there's, there's a very common question, like, uh, if, if a shaman like works with ayahuasca, how could they hit their children? Which is unfortunately like a common, um, culture, cultural like behavior with, with parents to their children in Peru. Mm -hmm. Or, or, you know, how could you cheat on your wife? Or, or how could you like do anything bad, what we consider to be bad, if you're working so closely with ayahuasca? Like how, how could you? Um, but to me, that, that's really just a, a human projection. Um, that the, there is no, like, I, I don't think there is this, like, universal idea of truth in morality. We believe there to be, 
but the reality outside of our belief is that fuck shit happens you know like there's I, I I look at it like right and wrong are human inventions and they are not black and white. There is no set right and wrong. We have had religious leaders or, you know, religions uh, provide like black and white kind of lists for that. But even then we know that, yeah, thou shalt not kill except, you know, thou right, shalt right. not, you know, there's always like some caveat. There's always some exception, you know, so... So even within our own conceptions of morality, there is never a truth, you know, because there's always context. And, and so, you know, like me, ayahuasca, um, is a conscious being and it does want what's best for us the same way that our parents do. But maybe I'm, I'm going to try to put it into that family dynamic as an example, like, your mother will will lie for you to keep you out of jail if you have done something harmful. You know, that's the level of love that she will have is that she will act immorally on your behalf even if you've done something immoral yourself. Like you maybe you killed someone, but uh, and not every mother would be like this, but 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 definitely some mothers would totally go to bat for you and lie in a court of law for you to keep you from going to jail, even though she might also know that you are guilty of murder. Yeah, and and so like that maybe is an example of how shady <laughs> the black and whiteness of morality is and by shady i mean like the grays uh between those black and white and and so you know going into an ayahuasca ceremony doesn't mean that like somehow there will be an inevitable uh morality that is inescapable you know it it, it really to me uh, like as i described it earlier is more about a, a raising of awareness but um but I don't think that ayahuasca is is going to like stop you from from being harmful to others or for for like doing something different. Um, and and I guess that's obviously clear because I lived with my first teacher in his house and I witnessed him like hit his children, which I struggled with. You know, he hit his wife, and I I struggled with that. Not all the time, but obviously, when I did see it, I was like, "Fuck!" You know, this is my teacher, and and this is like this person that I have so much respect for, but not this way. And I had to really come to terms with like, "Hey, you're you're not like studying how to be a dad here. You're studying how to be a healer." And the reality was that in the healing field, he was tremendous. And I kind of feel like part of that, or maybe a big part of that, is the Westerns, westernized view of sort of spirit healing as spirituality. You know, like I, another element of that paradigm distinction that I started this conversation with is like our, our core of our westernized or modern paradigm is material. You know, our core starts with material and we are a body and, and the core of the ancestral tradition starts with spirit. We are a spirit. And, and th that 
is maybe the source of all of the distinctions in one way. Um, but because of that, we, oh, fuck, I'm not losing any thought. But, um, because of that, we want, we view spirituality as this thing outside of us. You know, like, oh, if I'm a spiritual person, that means I like go and do this special stuff. When, when, if you believe that you, uh, your core reality is spirit, then what isn't spiritual? You know, like spirituality is just everything in life. That tree has a spirit. That plant has a spirit. That cloud has a spirit. I have a spirit. The animal is a spirit. Like everything is a spirit. Everything is spiritual. But when you believe that you're a body, then spirituality becomes this like revelation where you're like, oh, I want to go do some stuff of that spiritual. And, and, and so because of that, we're like projecting onto this idea of spirituality this also idea of morality, the idea of light over darkness, like these concepts, I think, are projections because we lack spirit at our core. And so we, we are kind of imagining what spirituality is because we didn't get to grow up in spirituality. But an ancestral tradition doesn't have that. And so it's almost the flip where everything is spiritual. And, and so the morality isn't associated with spirituality. So if you're doing something of a spiritual nature, that doesn't mean that you're more or less moral because everything is of a spiritual nature. I am a spirit. That is a spirit. Everything as a spirit. And so I, I kind of feel like that is probably like playing into those conceptions that are, like you mentioned, like typically westernized about you know, like the benevolence of spirit or that these are like, and, and possibly like our own religious upbringings about angels and demons and things. I mean, I, I don't know. There's, it's obviously like a complex concept or a collection of concepts, but, um, but yeah, my experience much more, and maybe that's why I, I lend, I lean that way in my descriptions is much more about amplification of awareness and, and through amplification of awareness, we can, evaluate our own perceptions and, and conceptions of morality more, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't come to still justify hitting our spouse or, you know, justify something that another culture might look upon. In fact, yeah. I, a great example actually for me is, uh, which is like a real easy example of how deep those conceptions can be, like how truth, uh, truthy they are is the difference of age in perception of adulthood. So in indigenous cultures, uh, menstruation is the biological signifier of maturity or at least, uh, you know, fertility. So once a child has a, a, a girl has her first period, she can now have children. And... You know, biologically, if you looked into the animal kingdom, every animal follows a very, very similar practice. Like when an animal reaches an age of fertility, usually not soon after, it does actually become pregnant. But, you know, if, if you put that into our world where 13-year-olds are getting pregnant and maybe those 13-year-olds are getting pregnant by 40-year-olds, 
um, that becomes like so disgusting that you want to, you know, lock those people up or kill them. And yet having a 13 year old get married to someone who has more standing and, and stability in their life, um, you know, like might be a total regular part of an indigenous culture. And, and man, that is a tough one. That's, you know, a, that's to, a tough one to wrap my head around. Yeah, right. That's a very tough one. And I, I use it specifically because, well, one, it's tough for me. My first teacher was 40 years old when he got his wife pregnant at the age of 14. And, you know, there you go. Wrap your head around that one. That was like, I lived with them as a family. and But she never, you know, she, that wasn't a, a trauma for her. That was that was her life. Like she, and my, my current teacher, Don Enrique Lopez, um, granted he wasn't the father, but his wife with a previous man or uh, another man like had her first child when she was 15. And, you know, having a child when you're 14 or 15 isn't uncommon at all. It's becoming uncommon now because of the, the influence of the West. Mm. But even still, there's like the quinceanera in the Peruvian culture, which is essentially like uh, introduction to motherhood. And that's still like a part of their their cultural like practice. But of course, even that today, like from our perspective, that's like crazy immoral to have sex with a 15-year-old. Like that, you should be locked up and you should like be severely punished and it's disgusting you know it's not even just like a crime it's like so deep for us but but clearly it's not for everyone and and that to me i guess is like a, a good way for us to expose that our truths are not so universal and even or maybe specifically especially with regard to morality yeah i mean that's a powerful example that instantly uh gets the point across. I guess the question is then if we view morality as a spectrum or uh, that it's relative, how do we personally choose our morality then? Is that it's an individual choice? I mean, because the morality of the culture I'm in in the United States in many ways is wrong or what I believe to be wrong. But that's just, then it's kind of like, well, this is my truth. And right. you have a bunch of people screaming at each other, this is my truth. It's, it's complicated because then I guess it gets into what is the idea of a social contract and right. all this shit. I mean, I would, I would love to like solve that. Uh, I, you know, I think I might like put myself into the, the rank of some sort of spiritual re- revolutionary if I were able to do that. But no, I, I can't, um, you know, yeah. I can't solve it. I, I recognize it to be a, an, an incredible challenge, especially a multicultural challenge. And I think the United States being so multicultural is also kind of an example of the, the, the complications that come from so many like cultural truths because it's a big part. It's, it's like before we're born, we are already kind of developing our morality. You know, it's almost like uh, epigenetically transferred to us before we even have a chance to experience what the world is. We already kind of have morality imposed on us. Um, so, you know, it's not so simple to just say, I choose this. Um, but, but clearly there are 
a lot of differences in in the the culture's truths about surrounding morality, you know, and and it does seem like we're lending like I I I'm obviously a Westerner, so like I agree with um with like the changes, like I I agree with with the changes that coincidentally are in line with my culture, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I think that most Americans would probably agree that uh, men and women should be treated equally and have equal rights, or people of different races, for that matter, as well. Of course, you know that those are like certainly concepts that we would all agree with. But go to some other cultures, and they might not agree with that. And and typically, our response is. Well, you should, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. you should think what I think. And I might even like go so far as to say, let's fight for you to think the way that I think. And, and welcome to the, the history of the world, you know, where so I, I don't have those answers at all. But I, I don't think they're that important, to be honest. I mean, that's something to think about, and that's where this conversation has taken us. But really, the inspiration for this conversation and and probably the more accurate topic, at least of what I can contribute to, is about my personal truths as they relate to my health and my well-being. Yes. You know, and so we're, you know, if we're talking about global morality, uh, like that, like we can read some, some books on that and, and have conversations forever. But I, I think that we can have a conversation about self-perception, self-identification, and the personal truths that are able to be changed or transferred or transformed for our benefit. And and that's all the personal work that we can do, even if it's in the umbrella of, you know, these kind of global or cultural ideas and, and ideologies and truths on that level. We still have a lot of wiggle room, a lot of freedom uh, to empower ourselves to make better choices about how we respond to our experiences and then thus interpret and remember those experiences to form a new reality. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I often get sucked into kind of tangentially related things like, you know, even the metaphysics of it all. That was a little bit of a tangent. You know, it's just a, a separate topic than what personal healing and the effect it can bring to you and the people around you. Like, here's, here's I think, how I want to tie it back together, because I think that we went off the rails a bit. When, when we, when we, when we got into this notion of like, um, benevolence or like right and wrong as ayahuasca. And I think you were right to like point out that, um, that the morality isn't so set in stone as we interpret it. But in our relationships that we know, and perhaps the best would be a relationship with a good teacher that we've had, you know, usually we come into it with our intention, you know, and so, when you come in with your intention and your teacher recognizes that intention and, and and the intention, you know, is in line with them because they obviously have their own morality, but then they, they, they're like striving to help you to achieve it. That's like the role of a good teacher is to provide that guidance, but the guidance is based on your own personal intention. And so teachers don't really teach us what intention to have they guide us to fulfill the intention we already bring to them. And I think that might be a better way of understanding how ayahuasca is of service to us, you know, is, is provides that, that guidance and that um, connection to, to 
fulfill our intentions because ultimately like we're going to ayahuasca with a set of ideas and desires for our goals to be met and ayahuasca often and almost always responds with a plan to like help us to succeed in those intentions and so maybe when putting it in that perspective it it can help to clarify like if my intention is to do something that someone might consider to be wrong or bad um, ayahuasca may still provide me with the guidance to fulfill my intentions because it's actually helping me uh, on a level of fulfillment of my intention rather than helping me to discern what is right and wrong or instill morality. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And it, it completely squares with my personal experience of drinking ayahuasca with all these different people is, um, you know, I've seen people whose intention is I have PTSD because I was in the Afghanistan war and I want to heal that. And they usually get what they want. I've right. also seen kind of people stumble in who my, uh, my judgment of them is not very high. And my perception is they came in an asshole and they left an asshole. <laughs> so, but again, that's just my perception. Yeah. I do think that they underwent some sort of change. It just wasn't what I thought they needed or, but what, what do I know? You know? Right. Um, right. Well, I mean, I think like now, um, veterans like drinking ayahuasca is becoming very popular. Um, you know, you've got vets, uh, um, veterans exploring treatment solutions, like setting up programs for veterans to drink ayahuasca at retreat centers. You've got Heroic Hearts, a, a much bigger organization doing the same thing. And, um, and I've totally heard like the, the commentary, like, you know, these are, these are baby killers. You know, these are, these are people that, that, are trained to kill people, you know, military men mm. and, or, and women, and 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 thus, like ayahuasca won't help them, or you know, ayahuasca like will punish them, or you know, as if like there's some sort of uh, again inherent morality in that. Um, and and I just you know, I don't see it, and it doesn't even like resonate with me. Um, you know, people are we are all who we are, and and I don't feel like the the, the spirits of nature make judgments the way that we do. I mean, it's kind of like clear that they don't. Yeah. And then that maybe like goes out into the, the, the realm of, of the goals of nature. And, and, you know, like there's a very, very popular belief that we are as humankind, like destroying the earth and that we are like a, a cancer to the earth. And, and I don't share it, um, to be totally honest. Like, of course, I, I want to have clean air. And, you know, I, like I have um, a desire to, to stop pollution and things of that nature. But, but the very existence of humankind, I, I, I can't see that the earth would have produced us and would have guided us the way that I do perceive the earth doing. Um, you know, I, I just give, I guess, maybe a lot more value to the intelligence of the earth than to suppose that I, uh, you know, like think the earth can't handle us or that you know, the earth like, really fucked up and was like, yeah, Oops. yeah, <laughs> right. these guys loose and oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do now? I hope that somebody comes and saves me. Like, I, I just don't like, I have so much faith and trust in the earth that I actually like 
kind of look at it the way that we've described. Like I project forward and to a point where we will gain an understanding and we will look back and say, oh man, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to the earth. Um, Another way of looking at that is like, you know, climate change and global warming or increased natural disasters that's a sign from the earth like okay you guys have overstepped your bounds a little bit right or or that it will take care of itself i mean you could easily say covid was just the earth being like okay i need to curb things in a little bit here yeah population growth has gotten too far right to think that the earth couldn't just wipe us out in a heartbeat like tomorrow the earth could kill every single human being in on the planet if it wanted to right but clearly it didn't create us because it wanted us to destroy it like to me and and one thing that i have which is obviously like optimistically inspired um is the the recognition in nature of the intense creativity and complexity of the reproductive systems, you know, our own being like unbelievably complex, like literally like magical, you know, but, but also like a seed growing into a tree or, um, you know, the way that plants produce these crazy flowers, some of which are like so unbelievable you know or like flowers that like entice a, f- a, a bee to fly down deep inside it or something and um you know dandelions parachutes like <laughs> twirly like wings seeds that like all like there's yeah, like yeah. a million different plants yeah. yeah like that's the ayahuasca seed um is the helicopter and and there's like a million different ways that Nature has like created these all these intricate ways for reproduction to take place, whether it's producing some super juicy fruit that entices a bird to eat it and then put its own manure in for fertilization in another place or or whether it's some crazy way that a, a, a seed gets carried on, on by other elements of nature. It's obvious that reproduction is an incredibly creative and somewhat magical process that we can recognize quite simply. So what's, if we are going to consider the earth to be a living being, what's the earth's reproductive system look like? What's that process look like? And would we be able to even recognize it if it was, if we were in the process right now, if we are a cell and we happen to be a cell that is produced during the pregnancy stage of the earth, let's say, what would we, would we be able to recognize that we are part of the pregnancy? Would we be able to recognize that we're in the throes of the labor, you know, if if the earth is giving birth right now, and this is the 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 labor pains and and the process of the birth itself, would we be able to recognize that? I don't think so. But would we be able to recognize if life starts outside of the earth? What if we go to Mars and we start living on Mars and grow plants on Mars and and put life on another planet? So all of human history at this point was just the gestation period. To get us to bring life from the Earth outward to a new place. That's a very sci-fi premise. (laughs) I guess, but... I. I mean, but no, I don't I'm saying, know if I it's so I've, crazy. I've heard that idea in sci-fi. It's kind of been implanted me at a young age so much that I don't even think that's ridiculous. Like, you could spin another bunch of weird ideas at me. I'd say, oh, that's that's absurd. But that, to me, seems like, yeah, I buy that. 
Well, once you've like looked into some of the the pretty pretty crazy things that nature already does, you know, it's it like I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't put realm. it. Pa- yeah, I wouldn't put it past her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, it, but more importantly, in in getting again back to a point which I think was very important to me, like the uh, the term you use, the destructive truth. You know, like mm-hmm. which truth is going to be my better truth? Because honestly, we don't know. There is no really when it comes to like humankind's effect on the earth. Are we really going to claim like that? We know that truth. Even if you look at global warming, like we've kind of flip flopped on global warming the last 150 years. If you wanted to go back, there were constantly like arguments about whether it was good or bad or what it's what it's doing. And I mean, I, I just think we'd be naive to think that we can lock in on our understanding as right or wrong right now. But but I definitely feel way better about my life as a human being on the planet Earth thinking that I'm part of the birthing process of something so marvelous and mysterious that I simply can't understand it, that gives me a smile. Uh, Whereas thinking I'm a cancer destroying the life force that I'm a part of doesn't really make me smile so much. And, And, you know, I don't really think that there is a... A way to determine, like the re, the really, you know, the, what is it really? I, I don't think we can determine that, mm. and that does give us a freedom. And my true meaning, because of my tremendous respect and trust in the intelligence of the Earth as a being, leans more towards the the birthing concept. Right on. <laughs> I, I agree. I. I wanted to touch briefly, um, given everything that we've discussed, that you're hosting the first government ayahuasca-funded science research. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that research is? And it'd be interesting to link that to everything we just discussed. Sure. Well, thankfully, um, Simon Nigel came to do a retreat with us, I believe, in 2016. And um, and he was blown away. He's a psychiatrist from the National Health Services in the UK. And he proposed the idea that he would like to do research. At that time, I was building a research center. So it was kind of perfect that those pieces came together. And and so he had his friend and colleague, Nigel Nutsband, come and do a retreat. They both agreed that this was like mind-blowing and they wanted to do a study. So on their own credit cards, they funded their pilot study and the results of which were so positive that they were able to write a grant proposal using that pilot study to get the funding from the British Medical Research Council to do their phase one trials, which started in 2018 and they ended in 2019. And and now we're, we've started the last year in October, we started the phase two trials. Um, they're looking specifically in the first study at childhood trauma, depression and anxiety and the effectiveness of treatment with ayahuasca and the plant medicine tradition in its native setting, um, which was a key like detail. So this is not clinical research. This is the research of the Shipibo tradition itself um, that encompasses the entirety of plant medicine. So they weren't isolating ayahuasca, and they weren't looking at it from a westernized point of view. They were working at 
looking at results within the indigenous paradigm, which I think is very, very valuable. Um, and the results were stunning, um, especially with depression, where they showed, because not only did they do uh, evaluations, psychological evaluations, and make comparisons based on them, but they also took um, epigenetic information. So they took saliva samples, and they did epigenetic analysis of those samples before and after the programs, and they found uh, that there was actually an epigenetic marker that was changed as a result of the, the retreats that the participants did, which kind of puts it into the realm of, of curing um, depression. And so that was then further confirmed by their six-month follow-ups where the evaluation showed that while there was a dramatic decrease in depression after the retreat, six months later, there was an even lower decrease in depression. And so that does imply that like the the the, the, the the treatment was successful, not just in the short term, but in the long term, it continued to be successful, which implies like a, a permanent shift. Now, my perception isn't so much, my under, my interpretation rather, isn't so much that it was um, an epigenetic shift, uh, but that the, the shift was the expression of mm -hmm. a consciousness shift, you know, so like the, 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 the epigenetic, the physiological response was to the consciousness change, like I've been saying. So at a high level, the epigenetic shift what you're talking about is that certain gene markers flipped on or off. Is that right? right. Exactly. Right. So gene expression can be flipped on or off, we now know, That's which, right. as you and I would probably say, is a result of consciousness shifting. That's right. So it's very fascinating, the idea of the scientific studies. They're kind of I think it's a necessary step, of, but they're kind of verifying what you and I already know. And what I'm sure if these scientists came and did a retreat, they're like, okay, we know there's something to this. Now we need to translate it and put it in words that our culture is going to understand. Right. Is that what you... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the coming together, like the eagle and the condor, you know, it's the coming together of these two distinct paradigms. And that's where I feel like is I'm in this unusual position or this unique, wonderful blessing position to, to try to help that, that coming together. Um, ultimately, the three, it's now three um, doctors because we were joined by um, Wai Feng Tsang, who is much more on the data analysis, but he's done a retreat with us as well. And they are not just going to do retreats. Like they will definitely do our training programs, these doctors. Mm. And they will probably then put be, be in a very, very, very small category of medically trained doctors who have indigenously trained uh, knowledge of, of plant medicines. And, and that will be the, the movement forward that I, I hope to have some influence on. And what I do see as as the future of Ayahuasca Foundation will be as a training facility for therapists in the psychedelic medicine field. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you have to have the data. You have to have the scientific experimentation in order to complete that integration. You know, and th there's two sides coming together. And so the scientific side needs to marry with the ancestral side, the modern and the ancestral coming together and they both contribute to it. Um, but to me, what's most important is that native setting 
aspect of the research, which is a recognition that the tradition itself is as or perhaps more important than the substance. And that to me is the kind of the key to revolutionizing the current medical paradigm that we are now operating, but which we also openly recognize to be quite lacking. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, amazing work. I think that's, yeah, I'm just super impressed. Are you aware, I just have to bring this in because it's delicious, that I wrote a book called The Eagle and the Condor that's about scientific research, the East meeting the West. It's it's more like a Michael Crichton thriller of where this could go wrong. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, great. Now I had to read it. <laughs> well, it, it's so interesting to look at, you know, all the themes that we talked about in this conversation are in there. And maybe my view is different. I wrote this, you know, a couple of years ago as I was still trying to process what ayahuasca was doing to me and my model's changing. But it's so funny to me that you bring that up. <laughs> uh, well, it was interesting. I mean, being a Westerner living with a shaman, you know, like... Um, it was very interesting to see the, the distinction of perception of me, you know, like some people definitely felt like I was, uh, you know, kind of a typical gringo, like, you know, with bad intentions, mm-hmm. like I, I was going to like ruin it, you know? Um, and then other people went, you know, that'd be an extreme. And then other people went the other extreme, which was like, you're the prophecy, you know, like you, you. Yeah, you're like fulfilling the prophecy, and so to like have those uh, influences, like interactions, and be like, okay, some people don't think I should be here and think I'm like ruining things, and some people think I'm like a prophet, you know? Yeah, and I'm, you're like, like don't lay that on me. I don't want that. Yeah, right. And and but everybody, m- most people were were actually just real people that, uh, rightfully so, like make judgments based on personal interactions. And, mm-hmm. and that, that to me, I think is like also very, very important. I think that we're super overgeneralizing about a lot in our society these days. And, um, and, and yet the reality and, and most specifically with regard to healing is that it is such a personal uh, experience and, and like relationships, again, being that bridge, you know, you can make sweeping statements about relationships, but all of them are, are not very helpful in specific relationships, which are between two individuals and the nature and dynamics of those relationships and how they work and why they work are all very, very, very complex, but always specific to the people directly involved in the relationships. And so to me, that is how I view the healing experience. And so that kind of cracks open the, the scientific model of understanding healing where we want like this drug to do this thing for everyone, you know, and, and I, I don't really think that we'll be able to maintain that if we're going to in, uh, incorporate the ancestral perspective. I don't even think we have that. It's hilarious how bad our, you know, Prozac works for like, 33% of the people some of the time. <laughs> right. Like it's, yeah, it's terrible. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything that you want to plug or get out there so people know where they can contact you or if they're interested in um, learning more about this stuff? 
Sure. Um, I mean, if you go to our website, ayahuascafoundation.org, um, you can learn about the programs that we offer. We do have shorter retreats, but we also offer the longer courses. And you can learn about the research that we're doing. If you're, con- if you're interested in contacting that our research team, you can do so through the website as well on the research tab um, as a contact us form. But we also have like a generic contact us form and that goes directly to me. If people have questions or concerns or want more information, I do recommend like checking the website out. I've spent a lot of time. So rather than just jumping to ask me the question, chances are it can be answered on the website and all of our social media platforms are linked to that site in the upper right hand corner. Great. Um, Okay. Well, it was really great talking to you, Carlos. I really appreciate your time. Definitely, man. It's always good to talk about this stuff. I think that we we definitely got out there, but we somehow made it back. So good for us. That's why I do it because, I don't know, when you have some of these experiences, you have to be able to go out to the, you don't want it to stay at the base level. You want to examine the whole picture and sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes you go too far out. And it's good that you brought it back and grounded it into what's important, I think. Thank you. I, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've been talking, you know, quite a bit this past year and I've found myself like leaning way heavier on uh, consciousness and, and speaking less about spirit because I feel like I'm imagining my audience to be more receptive to the concepts of consciousness rather than concepts of spirit because I recognize them to be outside of the Western perspective. But I also then like felt have been feeling bad that I am almost neglecting what is a very, very important part of this tradition to me and my own experiences. And so I was glad that we at least were able to to talk about um, spirit because I do feel like I need to make more of a concerted effort to work in concepts of spirit so that they can be at least imagined and hopefully understood. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a continuous journey, and I'll hopefully continue to connect the dots. <laughs>